The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, Five Live gets a new controller, the 4G auction flops, three RTS awards for ITV's Jimmy Savile investigation, two sides to every story in the Hilary Mantel Duchess of Cambridge row, and Peter Egan joins me to say a fond farewell to one of the country's great comic actors. There was, of course, only one Richard Briers. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I'm joined this week by Mr. Paul Robinson, uh, Media Talk regular, and by Helen Zaltzman, who is, of course, uh, one half of the Sony award-winning Answer Me This podcast. Welcome both. Thank you. Always Thanks. good to be regular. Well, you're very kind. Um, it's let's... always good to be half of something. <laughs> Imagine being a regular half, <laughs> uh, which is what I have uh, every night on a Friday in the pub. Enough oh, of that, John. Moving on. You were a wild on. man. Uh, let's start this week with the radio and the announcement of a new controller for BBC Radio 5 Live. Jonathan Wall was the station's former deputy controller and takes over from Adrian Van Claveran, who found himself embroiled in the fallout from the Jimmy Savile scandal. As happens at the BBC, he was moved sideways to a new job overseeing the corporation's coverage of the centenary of the First World War. But let's get back to Five Live. Paul, Jonathan Wall, the right man for the job? Yeah, I think uh, this is a really good appointment uh, on a number of levels. I mean, Jonathan is a real passionate lover of Five Live. He's been there 15 or so years. He absolutely lives and breathes the station. Um, he lives in the Northwest. Um, he, you know, he's worked under Adrian. He knows the ropes. Um, the staff, of course, were delighted, which I think is always a good sign. There was a spontaneous round of applause when it was announced um, in Salford Keys he got the job. And uh, I think he's the sort of guy, too, who's going to tackle some of the things Radio Five Live needs to get on with because it's a station now that's sort of into its second or third evolution and he probably needs to think quite carefully about root and branch um, regeneration particularly I guess of the the weekday lineup there's one or two slots there where I think starting to sound a bit tired and some new talent could could come in Um, there's issues at the weekend he's obviously got to make sure that it retains all the key sports rights and and last time round um, talk sport grabbed a bigger slug of Premier League football than they'd had previously so maintaining the sport is critical because that maintains the audience but also making sure the news programmes are uh, refreshed and vibrant is exactly what he needs to do I think he's the right man for the job I mean I really think Jonathan's going to be a great controller one of the great controllers and I think his passion and love for the network will take him a long way now, Helen, we couldn't tie you down to an exclusive contract, so you are occasionally <laughs> on the Five Live Airways. Occasionally, every every week, John. Every week. Yeah. So uh, I imagine you're, you're a big backer of the new manager. I really am. He's a really good egg. And also, um, I am biased, obviously, being on Five Live, but it was him directly who got me onto Five Live. Ollie and I, who make the podcast together, just wrote to him out the blue in 2009. He very gamely agreed to meet us and then experimented by putting us on the air and giving us some specials and then getting us on this weekly show. So very, very grateful to him. Paul, you mentioned a few bits uh, of the schedule that needed refreshing. What, what in particular are you thinking of? Well, I'm thinking, I think drive time is sounding really quite tired. Um, Peter Allen's a great broadcaster, but I think he just sounds a bit weary. And maybe he just needs to go somewhere else in the schedule. I wouldn't, I wouldn't mm. drop Peter Allen, but I think maybe he's been doing it. May, possibly, yeah, or weekends maybe. I'd love to see some stronger current affairs at the weekends maybe, and maybe he could hang, anchor that. I mean, I mean, sort of have a sort of love-hate with Nicky Campbell too. I mean, sometimes Nicky can be brilliant. Other times, you know, I think he sounds a bit like he's going through the paces. And, and Nicky, you know, does tend to wear his sort of his credentials on his sleeve a little bit. Um, I also think whilst Richard Bacon is a great broadcaster, I do think they need to look at the content of that show. At times it is so um, 
trivial and, and lacking any real sort of journalistic now. So I wonder whether it passes the sort of BBC public service test for a you know, key show during the day. So I'd look at those three strands, I think. Would you put Bacon on in the drive time slot? Possibly, yeah. I mean, I think Bacon maybe needs a bit more of a sort of a, a, a structure around him. His mm. show is very free form, isn't it? Um, and some days it's brilliant. As I say, some days it's not. And I think Bacon is definitely someone to keep on Five Live. But I think his show either needs to be reinvigorated or maybe he should be moved somewhere else. And Five Live has been in Salford, or the whole of the station has been in Salford now for just over a year. Um, not all of the programmes, of course, come from the northwest. I, Helen, I don't know where you do yours, but say no more, John. Say no from more from a hot air balloon above Britain. Of course, yeah, London, the entire nation. <laughs> but uh, how do you think it's coped with that move? In, in, in one sense, you don't really notice it on the air, mm. but in, in another sense, well, two issues. One is that uh, a lot of the presenters and executives, indeed, still live in London, although not. The new controller, which is really good, moved news. up there. Yeah, yeah and the news. other thing is, a lot of the guests are, are often um, down the line, and yes. that is more of an issue than it was when it was in uh, TV Centre in London. Yeah, that is a pity. But I think uh, Five Live acquitted themselves very well when it was the major sporting event in London of 2012, uh, despite the fact they'd moved to Salford rather inconveniently just before then. Uh, so I think it's I think it's okay, and it certainly is nice hearing a, a, a great variety of accents on the radio at last, uh, which is what they were gunning for. But there still could be more, obviously, and not just northwestern accents. There are many other regions of Britain. They do do that very well. I think the range of accents on Five Live is very good. Um, it was interesting when the BBC declared the latest expenses that, in fact, it was clear that there were very many more people travelling up and down to Manchester on Virgin trains than there were two years ago. Fancy and Five that. Live must be part of that. So you've got to get to a situation where the station is genuinely in the northwest and is drawing from the northwest and not just ferrying up London people on the train. Mm, or ferrying up London people to move to there. Yeah, but I think what happens quite often is you find that the guest and the presenter are both on the train going up to Manchester to go mm. and do the show up there rather than it being, you know, uh, on a sort of needs basis. And Paul, just uh, returning to your earlier answer again, uh, sports rights you mentioned and the, uh, mm. the, the current round of um, live Premier League football rights, that comes to an end at the end of this season uh, and negotiations I think are going to begin in earnest next month. So uh, last time round, BBC lost a, a third, I think, of their live radio football rights. That really will be a key thing for the new controller, and I'm, I'm guessing that Absolute Radio maybe won't be a contender this time, but TalkSport certainly will. TalkSport certainly will, and uh, TalkSport are probably in a stronger position now than they were last time, particularly now they've got their overseas uh, set up, which Moz D uh, put into place. Uh, the BBC have got to retain the lion's share of the Premier League rights for radio, and I think the issue here for the BBC is for strategically them to put money aside for that. You know, whilst the BBC has um, taken rightly a view, they're not going to compete for certain things. I think this is one where the BBC BBC does have to accept it has to compete and the price may go up but in fact it should do that because that's still value for money for license fee pairs that's enough radio for now i think it's about time we got hot under the collar a plastic princess designed to breed said the daily mail splash double booker prize winner hillary mantel has used her position among the novel writing elite all to be part of that to launch an astonishing and venomous attack on the duchess of cambridge scorning her as a personality free shop window and a mannequin with a plastic smile. Shocking stuff, but was there more to this front-page story than meets the eye? And was it, in fact, an attack on the Duchess of Cambridge at all? Helen, it's over to you. (laughs) (laughs) There's certainly more to it than met the eye, because uh, it was a small fragment of an extremely long speech that was then reprinted in the London Review of Books, which went on to talk about things like King Henry VIII's blood group. So it was a really interesting piece of writing, and I think... Taken out of context, those phrases do look bad, but I certainly don't think it was venomous. I think, in summation, what Hillary Mantle was saying was that, as someone who's married into the royals, 
it doesn't it's, it's not really pronounced what Kate Middleton's personality is actually like she's more a reflective surface and people see what they want when they see her unless she messes up but she hasn't messed up so she's doing the job well but is there some expense of her own character Paul it's a service it's a fascinating story, well, maybe not the story itself, but the way that the, the story evolved over the, over the following few days, because it wasn't particularly an attack on her Duchess Cambridge at all. It was more about the public perception of royalty. And, mm. and, them, uh, them being so interested in the womb. That's right, that's mm. right. And almost the media treatment, or, you know, uh, uh, the next thing is the media treatment of royalty. It's, gr- it's, gr- it's grown into this. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a perfect example of exactly what she was talking about. But because it was in the mail, because it was on the front page, it kind of ran and ran and it ballooned and ballooned, and suddenly it was all we were talking about. Yeah, and uh, the Mail Online was carrying even more coverage. And, of course, the Mail Online has got incredible reach and and is, is very influential. Um, I mean, I think, do we want um, our personalities, to be our, our, our royals, to have big personalities? I think we probably don't, do we? And, well, and, uh, it depends, you know, were they, really. to, were they? Well, I mean, look, I mean, if you said Prince Harry has a big personality, that got him into a lot of trouble, didn't well, it? And we weren't the, very happy with that. Yeah. We want our royals to be rather sort of prim and proper and, and bland, don't we? And therefore, you know, surely she's just doing the job she's meant to do. Well, exactly. You, although you do want a couple of wacky ones like Harry and Fergie just to brighten things just up a bit. Just to brighten things up. But, I mean, th- th- this girl probably has got a great deal more behind the yeah. uh, the scenes and of course we're not going to see that and, and nor should we well i think also there was a tone of uh, hillary mantle feeling a bit sorry for her because no one is that interested in her opinions they look at what shoes she's wearing and her hair looking nice and the the ever-present bump watch uh, but, but you could easily miss that in the coverage, couldn't you? I mean, the coverage just didn't really reflect that. I mean, you know, yeah. everyone's just seeing these sort of um, vitriolic uh, uh, comments, and that's all that's really now making uh, making the popular press. Yeah, and then also they say things like, "Well, Hillary Mantle's not not an oil painting herself," blah blah blah, as if it was about that. It's irrelevant. Yeah, yeah. I think part of the problem was that the original essay, as you hear, was reprinted in the. Uh, the London Review of Books was, it was five and a half thousand words long, so not many yes. people were returning to the source material. I'd recommend it, though, if you've got a free 15 minutes. Well, one person who did You read fast. I Louise, do read fast. Louise Mensch. I don't read as fast as Louise Mensch. Indeed. Well, tell us about that, Ellen. <laughs> Louise Mensch said, oh, I read this in five minutes, and everyone else saying, that's right, she how said, did you manage that? She tweeted, well, that's five minutes of my life I'm not going to get back, which uh, people were suggesting she has an X-Men-style uh, powers back of reading 10. ability. Yeah. <laughs> That's right, that's right. Well, well done, Louise. It's good that Louise Mensch is uh, still piping up with uh, valuable opinions. That's right, perhaps they can talk about it on mention. Uh, oh, no. Well, yeah. oh, no, maybe not. They'll no, have no. to put a post on Unfashionista instead. Uh, jolly good. Or maybe Pinterest, which is uh, <laughs> which has been valued at, which has been valued at what today? Is it two and a half billion? Two and a half oh, billion. Really? I forget if it's pounds or dollars, but it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound hardly enough to me. Uh, exactly. Uh, well, uh, talking about uh, lots of money, um, we move on to the 4G mobile broadband auction which this week raised £2.3 billion for the public purse. It was a third less than the Treasury was hoping to raise uh, to help keep borrowing in check. And it was also, as you'll both remember, no doubt, a fraction of the £22.5 billion that was handed over by mobile phone networks in 2000 uh, for the airwaves that are now being used for today's 3G services. Uh, Paul, what did you make of this? Was this overestimating uh, interest? Have the telecoms companies got a bargain? Or is this a reflection that 4G maybe is not, not all it's, we think it might be cracked up to be? Well, it's hard to know whether the forecast was over-egged and therefore what's been achieved is realistic. I mean, Ofcom are very experienced at conducting these sort of auctions and went through 50-odd rounds or so of auctions. So you have to assume that they did the very best job they could to get the best value for um, the uh, Treasury, but also for the uh, the consumers. And, and, and clearly, they've got a decent sum of money, but not what was expected. Um, what's interesting, I think, is um, EE reported results this week, and um, they and were they're criticised. The, they're the only company that currently operates 4G. Yeah, 
they have they have a nine month um, nine month lead time, um, and they're being forced to sell some of their bandwidth to um, three, but they have a, they have a lead time in the eight hundred megahertz spectrum, and um, they've not really done particularly well. At least we think that's the case because when they're asked about you know how well have you done, they they wouldn't really say it's, it's on track, and you know we're getting quite a good take up, which means they haven't had exceptional take up. I think <laughs> the problem is for consumers is if they've already got three G, I think they don't quite understand what four G does for mm. them. You know, you've already got mobile internet. 4G is a bit faster. And, of course, also, um, since the 3G auction took place, there are now many, many more Wi-Fi hotspots. And I think people have got used to using Wi-Fi hotspots and therefore not using their mobile networks, you know, when they're actually going online and, and getting quite savvy about that. And, and they know that if they do, in fact, use their 3G network, the bill can be quite hefty if you're using it all the time. So I think not proven what the benefit of 4G is, you know, coupled with maybe a bit of over-expectation probably answers the question. Also, it's very different to uh, when they were auctioning 3G in 2000, because in 2000, mobiles didn't really do anything. They held about 10 texts. People were still getting used to them. It was several years before the expectation of uh, having the internet on your phone really crept in, I think. So presumably when it was the first opportunity to properly do that, they all leapt in, whereas now they've got a service that most people are at least reasonably happy with. Well, it's very interesting, Sky. I mean, Sky have, have worked very hard on, on Sky Go uh, because Sky Go customers are more sticky than, than, than non-Sky Go customers. But to make Sky Go work, they acquired a, a, a Wi-Fi network. So, in fact, people could actually use Sky Go in, in cafes and things using a Wi-Fi network rather than using 4G bandwidth because they're aware of the cost implications. So I think, I think um, the way consumers think about this and the way they actually conduct their lives now is, is different. The other thing, of course, is that social media is so huge that most phones now actually are as much about using social media as about using it for data or making calls. That's right. I saw them described uh, by one uh, columnist as, as uh, because uh, people use them for, as you say, for you know social networking, what have you, not actually to make calls. That they're, they're they're digital drug mules. I think was the phrase. It which, was uh, indeed the phrase. Yes, yeah, I think yeah. that's maybe a shade harsh, but I mean, yeah. I get the yes, point. It's, yeah. mm, what are they going for with that, really? Well, I mean, it, it is legal to use uh, Facebook exactly. on your phone. It's not quite the same. But, I mean, the point is, I mean, they're, they're obliged to provide those services, but there's no real revenue. If you're using, you know, a number of these services where there is no fee attached to it, then, in fact, there's no revenue for the, um, the operators. That's the issue. But the good news is, because the mobile phone operators didn't pay too much money for the Spectrum, they can now actually spend that money on rollout, whereas uh, mm. back, in, uh, back in 2000, they, spent, they splashed so much cash on buying the licenses up and it took them forever to actually get these things working. And even more Kevin Bacon ads. Yeah, a great, yes. Oh. Yeah. I don't watch the following, but I do watch uh, everything uh, everywhere ads. Yeah, they're the ones I That's mean. Good. I mean, yeah, they're yeah. everywhere. Yeah. They are everywhere. Uh, and uh, clearly they've not really worked. Does it make you like Kevin Bacon more, seeing him uh, sell me, stuff for money, Helen? It makes me a little bit sad. <laughs> Especially as he clearly has no idea what he's talking about when he's going, dancing on ice, blah, blah, blah. Just uh, The only way is Essex, fake town, whoop, whoop, whoop. It's just, <laughs> That's exactly what he says. <laughs> he yeah. sounds a lot like that, doesn't he? Well, Kevin, if you're listening, you're welcome to come in next week and uh, tell us who you want to win. You're an Oscar-nominated actor, if it's Kevin. On. Don't do it. <laughs> not rating as well as last time round, is it, Paul? I bet you're a Dancing on Ice fan. Uh, I'm not, actually, no. I, no I, I've I, lost my bet. I like the dancing, but not on the ice. <laughs> right, OK. No, I do watch it occasionally, but uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's lost its edge. I'm, hey. just bo- I'm bored. Oh, very good. I'm just bored. Ice buns. Yeah, I, Exactly. <laughs> And talking of ITV, Paul, it was a good night uh, for their Jimmy Savile uh, documentary at the Royal Television Society Journalistic Awards on yes, Wednesday night. Great for ITV, enough. maybe a bit embarrassing for the BBC because underlined yet again uh, that the BBC um, dropped their Newsnight investigation because um, ITN's coverage achieved um, three awards. Uh, at the uh, the RTS Awards uh, for the Jimmy Savile abuse story as Scoop of the Year um, and other awards. So, I mean, good, good for ITV, really, and, and good to recognise that. And also a good night for Channel 4. 
Yeah, I mean, Channel 4 won the same number of awards as the BBC. I mean, News Programme of the Year and Jon Snow, National Presenter of the Year. So great result for, for Channel 4. And uh, in an unusual uh, juxtaposition, uh, or unlikely perhaps I should say, Paul, at the same time as the RTS Journal Awards are going on, a load of poptastic chaps were at the O2 at uh, the Brit Awards. Uh, they were, and I was sad not to be invited, but maybe next year. I don't know what happened to the invitation this year. But <laughs> what was really interesting, plug, plug, what was really interesting, I hope the right people do actually listen to this podcast. Of course. I'm sure they do. Um, great result on television, great result for ITV again, 6.5 million viewers, the highest for 10 years. And, and, and hard to know what it's down to, except I guess it must be, you know, all those fantastic uh, British acts, you know, ranging from Mumford & Sons to, to um, One Direction. Uh, Emily Sunday. Uh, Are you being know. sarcastic, Paul? Or? No, I'm not. I'm oh, right. seriously Just not. Just checking. <laughs> I, I, really, I really do think it's been an amazing, a fantastic time for British music. It's great to see the Americans really respecting what we do. You know, Adele, another one. Uh, they really do. Um, and uh, I think these are good artists, really strong artists. Um, and it's, I think it's good for the music industry because having seen, um, you know, gloom and doom and, you know, HMV closing, what it does show is there is a demand for really good music and really good British music. And have that on TV and getting that sort of number is really encouraging. Helen, there's been some criticism that Brits saying it sort of lacks a bit of dynamism, but it's, it's all oh, a bit safe. When but, did it uh, ever not, though? It's an awards uh, ceremony that's always skewed commercial, so I don't think it's particularly changed anything. In fact, probably it is a little more credible than it used to be. You don't need water on John, Plun- on John Plunkett's head. I was going to say John Prescott's <laughs> head. You don't need water being thrown on John Prescott's head. Or Although um, it is fun when that happens, or isn't Bre- it? Or uh, was it Brandon Block uh, invading the stage? Yeah. And, Good and times. Jarvis Cocker. Jarvis Cocker showing his bum. You know, I mean, it's fun. it's fun, you know. But, I mean, look, it's, 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 it's pop and it's, it's a music industry. Well, also, there aren't other pop music shows on TV much anymore. So maybe that's where people are getting their fix now because there isn't Top of the Pops, there isn't CD UK or anything like that. It's possibly true. But I, I think there's a genuine um, push behind these artists, and I think there's a genuine appreciation. And look, One Direction alone are a huge phenomenon. I think the, the title of their award, Global Success Award, is a pretty you know mediocre title. They yeah. could have worked a bit harder to the make One it The One Direction sound. Honorary Award. The One Direction Global Success Award. But those, those, those guys are doing an amazing job. I mean, the amount of uh, music they're selling in the US is quite unprecedented, and we should recognize that and should applaud it. Whatever you think of One Direction, you know, it's a fantastic uh, export for the UK. If nothing else. Okay, then, time now to go from the Brits to a great Brit. Richard Bryars sadly died this week, aged 79. Star of stage, screen, and radio, he's best remembered for BBC One's The Good Life. But he also starred in another BBC One sitcom, and a particular favourite of mine, Ever Decreasing Circles. Just earlier, I spoke to Peter Egan, who starred in the show along with Bryars and Penelope Wilton, and I asked him about his memories of Richard. Uh, I think that um, Richard, who I consider to be one of the great, truly great comedians with a perfect um, uh, sense of comedy and timing, has disappointed me this week um, with a very bad sense of timing by leaving us as abruptly as he did on Sunday last. Um, So it's been a devastating week in many ways because I really adored him. He was a a very good and marvellous friend. And uh, and I'm sort of in a bit of a state of shock, really, and and very sad that um, that he's left us. Uh, he was a brilliant man. And the Good Life, of course, is a show that everyone associates with him. But you starred with him 
in Everything Circles, which was a program that I watched uh, in the early 1980s on, B- on BBC One, a Sunday night sitcom. That's right. Yes, it was fantastic. Um, I mean, um, I'd worked with Richard before Everything Circles. We, we had done a play together in the West End at Lyric, Shaftesbury Avenue, a George Bernard Shaw play called Arms and the Man. He played Bluntschley and I played Sergius. And um, we found... Uh, working on that play and being in the West End together for six months, that we had a really good working relationship and enjoyed each other's company a lot. And certainly uh, I loved his sense of humor. So it's a great tribute, I think, to him from my part as a colleague and as a friend that I accepted ever-decreasing circles um, sort of uh, without reading it. Um, I was in New York at the time I was asked to do it, and they didn't have time to get the scripts to me. It was his wife, Annie, who suggested me for the part of Paul because they had quite difficulty in casting it for some reason. I don't know why, but they did. Anyway, my agent rang me and said, would you like to do a series? And I said, I'll read it when I come back. And he said, well, they haven't got time. Um, They they need to cast this part quite quickly. Um, I said, well, who's in it? And um, he said, Richard Bryars and Penny Wilton. And I said, I'll do it. Um, Two people I admired hugely, but particularly Richard, because... um, we had already a great working relationship. And so I accepted that part and uh, then had five magical years um, working on ever-decreasing circles with him and the team. And uh, I, I think I, I didn't stop laughing for all of those five years. He, it was a wonderful time. It was, um, well, it was written by John Esmond and Bob Larby, who wrote um, The Good Life, of course. Indeed, yeah. On the surface, it was um, just another sort of um, middle-class suburban sitcom, but it had... It was very, uh, it was very funny, but also had very sort of dark undertones, didn't it? It was very melancholic. Uh, there's a lot of tragedy involved in, in, in some of the characters. I mean, t- Indeed, can you tell yeah. us a little bit for people who saw it? Remind them of, for people who didn't see it. Tell them a bit about the show. Well, the show um, took place in a suburban close. Um, it, it was supposed to be around the Mole Valley, um, wherever that may be. We filmed it in Billingshurst in, in Sussex, but um, it was a, very much a suburban close. People living very sheltered lives. Richard was the, um, the, as it were, the busybody within the close. He was the person, the Mr. Fixit. He wanted to be at the head of all committees and arrange everything. And um, he, w- he had an executive position as a, a senior manager in a company called Mole Valley Valves. And that sort of really sums him up, I think, um, as a character, Martin Bryce, the person was called, who was married to a very attractive um, wife, Anne, played by Penny Wilson. And um, also in the close were a, a very eccentric couple called Howard and Hilda, who used to uh, who had a great relationship and used to share similar clothes. So they would have similar pullovers and cardigans and things, and they were also a very good double act. And into the close um, comes this um, bachelor uh, hairdresser called Paul, the part that I played, and upsets the kind of harmony in the close by being um, somebody who can do everything with great ease, um, which disturbs Martin, who does everything with great difficulty. And it became a classic kind of comedy duo, really, of um, the smiling uh, Paul and the obsessive uh, Martin. And what worked terribly well for me was the fact that I liked Richard so much and he made me laugh so much that I was able to introduce into the part of Paul a great sense of humor as far as the relationship was concerned. So it was never a kind of unkind competitiveness that uh, resulted, but a very warm and friendly one. And it was sad because the the, the deep unhappiness at the heart of of Martin's character uh, and also you always wonder whether his wife was going to leave him for you or Absolutely, your character at yes. least yeah. well i think that was a good part of the tease of course it could never have happened one because 
um, and was devoted to Martin in the series, even though they may have been, as many people are, mismatched. So that would never have happened. But that tease was always there. And indeed, that was part of the heartbreak. And I think in many ways, you know, um, part of Richard's greatness as a comedian and as an actor was that he did manifest very accurately the ordinary man. He used to call himself Mr. Anorak, which, of course, he wasn't. He was a, 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 quite a brilliant person, I think. But he, he had this identification with suburban male, with the suburban male, so he could actually do great service to those people and offer a certain kind of magic. Because so many people used to say to me, oh, God, I know Martin. It might, I've got a next-door neighbor just like Martin. He, he, he drives me mad, but I like him. And some people would say, my wife just turned to me and said, that's you, you're Martin, you know. And <laughs> right. so, he, you know, he, 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 he did actually capture a very real and recognizable um, human being. And none other than Ricky Gervais has uh, called it one of the greatest sitcoms of all time and said, uh, if the BBC repeats it, they can have The Office back for free. I know, I saw that on Twitter. Isn't that wonderful? Ricky Gervais is a neighbour of mine, and, um, and occasionally I see him at various kind of do's um, around Hampstead Heath. Uh, he's also a great animal lover, which I am too. And yes, he's often said what a great fan of the programme he was, and I know that Richard was incredibly flattered by that. I mean... Uh, really delighted and of course it's a great offer and I hope the BBC take him up on it My thanks to Peter Egan there uh, Paul, Richard Bryars, one of the country's great comic actors Yeah, great comic actor who I think might have been destined just for fast because he was doing a lot of sort of in and out of the window stuff wasn't he for a while and then The Good Life came along and really that's what defined his career although it was a long time ago um, and um, I was surprised to see only four seasons of it and somehow as a sitcom it's, um, it stood beyond that, a bit like Forty Towers as one of the, the pillars of excellence in British uh, comedy. That's I yeah, that's the good life. That's the good life. Yeah. I thought I thought the good life was amazing. I watched every episode, and I, he was a hero. Actually, I, a really good, uh, a really good guy. I mean, part of my childhood. Well, that's it for the second part of the show. Time has come to say farewell to Mr. Paul Robinson and Helen Zaltzman. Thank you, pleasure. Thank you. Farewell, John. This week on the Guardian Audio Edition, Tracy Thorne, the accidental pop star. Churches step in to fill the gap left by welfare cuts. And in the book review, we consider Frankenstein by Mary Shelley and Wendy Moore's How to Create the Perfect Wife. To subscribe for free to the Guardian Audio Edition, go to audible.co.uk forward slash guardian or find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. The Guardian Audio Edition, a new way to get the whole picture. I'm joined for the last part of the show by The Guardian Guide's Rebecca Nicholson. Welcome. Hello, thanks. Now, I have all five episodes of Channel 4's Utopia on the old, uh, you know, digital TV recorder. Well, there are six, so I suspect oh, maybe the Utopia's shadowy network has been at your, <laughs> at your recorder. Well, maybe I missed it, but should I watch them? That's the, big, that's the big question everyone's asking who's listening to this right now. I would say absolutely watch it. I, I don't think it's done tremendously well in the ratings, but it's a brilliantly written, gorgeous-looking show that's been very gripping. And actually, uh, down at the guide desk, we've been having weekly discussions about it, which doesn't happen that often with a TV show. But every Wednesday, we come in, have a chat about what's happened. And I've been making use of the, uh, the series blog on the website too, because it's not very easy to follow. And there are quite a few points that I had to check just to make sure that I was aware of 
that I knew, or I just, I couldn't follow the last episode, essentially. But <laughs> right, okay. now that I've read the blog, I'm aware of what I was missing. And I think it's great. It, it looks good. It's very British. It's funny. It reminded me of, do you remember the shadow line from a couple of years ago on BBC Two? I do, yeah. It was like a kind of neon version of that. It wasn't quite so uh, pretentious. And I thought it was a real cracker. I hope they do another series. I'm not sure if they can. But I hope they do. Well, it struggled in the ratings, as you said. Yeah, I think it ended up with sort of six or 700,000 viewers uh, and more than a million started it. So you expect a drop off. But I'm sure Channel 4 must be disappointed with that. But I don't know. I would have thought that show would be destined for a kind of cult success. I, I really am baffled as to why that has happened. Maybe it's that people don't want to watch a drama at 10 p.m. I don't know. I don't know what the problem is, but I think it's a real shame. It's a great show. Well, slightly easier to watch, and probably you can understand this without reading a blog about it, will be BBC Two's new sitcom, Heading Out. Yes, this is Sue Perkins' uh, sitcom. She's written and starred in it. And it's very funny. It's a very kind of BBC Two comedy. It's well done. She seems to be playing a version of herself. She's kind of awkward and quippy and quick. And uh, it's just, it's very, it's very well done. It's very amiable. It's easy to like it. It's, I don't think it's a revolutionary sitcom but it's very hard to find any kind of fault with it it's very funny playing a version of herself so i'm kind of getting some miranda overtones or grandma's house maybe or uh it's hesitate to suggest somewhere between the two it's not as weird as grandma's house and it's not as kind of straight metaphorically as well as literally actually one of the plot is that she's a vet who's 40 and she hasn't told her parents that she's gay and that is happening over the course of the series she sets herself a deadline for it and has to tell them so somewhere between the two and it's uh, presumably a sort of audience sitcom and, uh, you know, filmed in the TV studio and uh, no, no, old-fashioned. No. It's not? Oh. It isn't. Well, I'm glad I assume that. Yep. And she's had a bit of a career revival off the back of the Great British Bake Off. She kind of, she shone, didn't she, Sue Perkins, you know, sort of 10, 15 years ago? Well, Sean might be overdoing it, but uh, as part of her sort of double act, then she sort of disappeared. Yes. And now, you know, she's one of BBC Two's biggest stars. Well, it was that and the Super Sizes as well with Giles Corrin. Oh, yes. She did very well in that. I've managed to forget that. <laughs> I thought that was very good. Uh, they did a Good Life episode, which is very timely. But yeah, I think, okay. she's, I think she's very amiable and this comes across in this sitcom. It's nicely done. It's classy. Now, and also on BBC, I think BBC One this time, is A Child, on a, a Child in Our Time, which is nothing to do with the Ian McEwan novel that absolutely left me very confused. It is not. And I didn't have a blog to read about, so I, I, just, I just gave up. It's another instalment of the BBC's uh, version of the 7-Up series. So this started in the year 2000 and it's following children throughout their lives and now all the kids have turned into teenagers or are on the verge of turning into teenagers and they're going to secondary school and it's just one of those shows it, it was a uh, I watched the Channel 4's chicken shop cutting edge program this week and it's a similar thing to that in that it's just very much a slice of life you kind of get people from all walks of British life and you get to look at their lives and whereas Channel 4 has kind of has mastered this kind of thing in a very Channel 4 style. So you get one born every minute, 24 hours in A&E, and the chicken shop very much follows that. It kind of, it almost feels like you d- they just let it happen and it kind of plays out quite naturally. This is more of a BBC way of doing it in that there's a nice kind of score and, you know, it's all very kind of beautifully done. And again, it's classy, um, but also very sad. I should warn people if they're, if they're planning to tune in next Wednesday. I had two or three moments of, of near... Uh, weeps. This may be to do with enjoying the Brits too much last night. <laughs> <laughs> and that's with Professor, it's Robert, or is it, perhaps I should say Lord Professor Robert Winston. Can you be a Lord and a Professor? I think you can, but I'm not sure in what you order. Yeah. Professor yeah. Lord. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Okay, well, Rebecca, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. 
Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks to all our guests, Paul Robinson, Helen Zaltzman, Rebecca Nicholson, and especially to Peter Egan. You can leave your thoughts on anything and indeed everything you've heard on this week's show on our blog or our Facebook wall. And you can tell me your favourite episode of Ever Decreasing Circles on my Twitter account, at JohnPlunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Simon Barnard. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.